Let's keep our focus on Christ by turning in our Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. If you are a guest and you need that, that pew, or excuse me, I'm struggling, that chair Bible in front of you, you'll find our text this morning on page 889. 889. John 4. And specifically, this morning, we're going to be studying in more depth uh, verses 27 through 42. We're revisiting our study from two weeks ago, the woman at the well. And although it doesn't follow our normal order of things, I am revisiting this on purpose. Providential hindrances prevented me from being able to spend as much time as I felt was pastorally wise on the application of that particular message, and I thought it would be good for us to actually go back and look at it a little more. John 4, let's read again verses 27 to 42. Follow along as I read. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or Why are you talking with her? So, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world." The title of the podcast grabbed my attention from the start. Parking is hell. It got your attention too, didn't it? It was a a particular episode by uh, two economists who dedicate themselves into trying to apply their field, uh, economics, to seemingly random, everyday, ordinary kind of events and occurrences. The 
The podcast, if you ever wanted to listen to it, is interesting. It's called Freakonomics. <laughs> you get the idea, a mix of something weird and then economics, which would be something kind of boring. So in this particular episode, they decided to apply their trade to what seems to be the parking problem in most large cities in the United States. If you've ever lived somewhere like Los Angeles or New York or even Atlanta, uh, you know that it is a nightmare. Uh, parking in some places costing $32 an hour. And so these economists decided to actually spend some time thinking through uh, the basics and the fundamentals of the parking situation in the United States. And ultimately, by researching and accumulating people's PhD dissertations, they decided that if the parking issue in America continues at its current rate, that no one will be able to park or even own a car because there will be no spaces for them to park. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of that, but what I found to be immensely interesting about their study is they brought out this common problem, dilemma, uh, that is basically represented between this bridge between the academy and the everyday ordinary individual. Their study, their academic study would show that we're going to have a major parking problem in the entire United States if people continue to buy cars at their current rate and continue to try to park them. But it's all on paper. What they acknowledged in the episode that I found immensely fascinating is that that cannot solve the problem. The academics can't solve the problem. They need somebody with a little more practical know-how to know how to curb this before we ever get there in the first place. So academics are good at identifying the issue, but you need someone with the wisdom of Solomon to figure out how to actually solve it. The more practical, common, ordinary, everyday wisdom. Somebody with life skills. Some people are good at pushing pen to paper. Some people are good at getting stuff done. There's a gap between the two. I find that as I have meditated on this particular text, John 4, what is often called the woman at the well, over the last few weeks now, we come to a similar problem because it's huge. The entire story runs 42 verses, and in it, in it is contained some of the most immense themes in all of Scripture. I mean, we're talking about uh, bridging racial barriers. We're talking about uh, that hunger of the soul, that, that thirst of the soul that needs to be quenched and can only be satisfied by Christ. There's even that passage in there about what it means to truly worship Jesus. I mean, that phrase, worship in spirit and in truth. I mean, you could spend 12 sermons unpacking that very thing. And then Jesus, in this same conversation, begins to talk about the laborer and the field and our need to have this impact on the world and evangelism. And like you could literally just spend like an entire year working through John 4, 1 through 42. There's a lot there theoretically. But the point is actually practical. And I'll admit, I failed to get to the practical point a couple weeks ago. I even asked you guys, this is funny to me, this is how much of a loser I can be at times. I even asked you to raise your hands and say, how many of you have heard this story before? You know it to some depth. Everybody but two people raised their hands. 
And I'm like, all right, well, this is what I'm going to do in light of that. I'm going to spend more time on the significance than the story. And you know what I did? I spent 50 minutes on the significance. I mean, excuse me, on the story. And like way too long on trying to get to the significance (laughs) in the end. It was the longest sermon I've been told by some of you that I ever preached here. And you know what the funny thing was? I never got to the main significance. I never got to the application. I spent all the time in the academic, and I never made it to the practical and the common sense. So I'm trying again. That's what we're doing today. We're going to try again. But here's how this is going to work, though. I'm not going to re-preach the entire message again. What I'm going to do is get you to the heart of the message so that we can make wise applications. We're going to spend less time in the theoretical more time in the practical. For those of you who are here for the first time today, if you want to hear all the homework, you can go back and listen to something from two weeks ago. But I want to help catch everyone up. And I think the easiest way for us to do this, and you note takers are going to really like this, you could write down three words on your little sheet of paper and then just fill in some thoughts on them because I'm following just a basic three-point outline. And uh, I think this is rather novel. It's an acronym. And it's very relaxing. Spa. (laughs) Story. Point. Application. Story. Point. Application. By the way, feel free to rob that because anytime you're studying a passage of Scripture, you want to know what the story is saying. You need to figure out the main point and then you need to apply it. So there's a freebie. So we're using spa today, and the story we will well remember, and I will do this quickly, follows along just three lines. There was this context that, here's the problem, sorry, time out. We call this story the woman at the well, and, and it's bad advertising. It's not actually about the woman at the well. There is indeed a woman. She is at a well. But the whole thing begins and ends with this rather shocking revelation that Jesus, the Son of God, is spending time in intentional ministry in Samaria. You remember the context, the way that this was set up? It said that Jesus was providentially moved from Judea. He was trying to make his way through Galilee. And I think it's around verse 4 that it says that he must needs, that's King James, go through Samaria. Like he was compelled to go through Samaria. And then it's going to mention Samaria again and again and again and again. The word Samaria repeats itself over and over and over and over again at the very beginning. And then when you get to the end of the story, John as the narrator is going to pick up that Samaritan theme once more. The the, the real point of this is that the Son of God, who is Jesus, spent time ministering to Samaritans to the point that at the very end of the story, he is proclaimed to be The Savior of the Jews. No. He is proclaimed to be the Savior of the world. Now, the Samaritan name to most of us doesn't mean that much. It just seems to be another people group. But as we will remember, in that particular culture and time and place, this was the repugnant other of the Jewish people. 
They didn't, they didn't like Gentiles at all, but they especially hated the Samaritans. And so the fact that Jesus would spend intentional time with a group of people that were especially hated by the Jews like made a huge impact on anyone who would be reading. So the context is Jesus actually ministering to a Samaritan, which was a social taboo, but not only that, a social, I mean, a, a Samaritan woman. And we talked through how the rabbis of that particular day were rather sexist. Uh, they had a very low view of women and didn't even think that someone should have a conversation with them. In fact, uh, one particular tractate actually recorded that a rabbi was at risk of going to hell if he wasted his time teaching a woman. And Jesus just broke all the social barriers. He spent time with Samaritan. He particularly ministered to this woman. That's the context in verses 1 through 6. And then the story continues with this conversation. It's a rather long conversation, but I, we could boil it down into two simple movements. The first part of the conversation was her felt need, this lady's felt need, and it's about water, right? You remember that? This felt need about water. She's thirsty. She's at a well. She's in there in the middle of the day which kind of indicates that she's a morally dubious individual because women don't go to wells in the middle of the day. They normally go in groups at the beginning of the day or the end of the day. So she doesn't want the social ostracization that would come from being with those other women. And so she's there alone. She's got a problem socially. She's got a problem Physically, she needs water, and she's got a problem spiritually. Her soul is craving something. And so Jesus instead offers her water after asking her for water. She thinks he's talking about running water, like fresh water. And Jesus is like, no, I'm talking about living water, that which will give you life. And she says, yes, I want that because I don't want to have to ever come back to this well. She's only thinking in terms of physical needs, but there's something else here. Jesus starts with her felt need, and then here's the second part of the conversation. You ready? He moves to her factual need. There's felt need, and then there's factual need. The felt need dealt with water. The factual need dealt with worship. She thought that this thing was about water. He starts there indeed, but he doesn't finish there. He finishes with her heart's allegiance. She was a religious person to some degree. As a Samaritan, she believed that there was a certain place in which she should worship, and if she did that, all would be well. She perceives that Jesus is a prophet, and Jesus uses his prophetic ability to say, no, this is not the issue at all. It's not a matter of where you worship. It's a matter of who and how you worship. You worship God who is spirit. He is not confined to any particular place, and you worship him with your soul, with your spirit, with everything that you have within you. It is not about showing up to the the right time and the right place and offering worship. It was a matter of worship. The factual need was a matter of worship. So that's the conversation. But that's not the end of the story. Because then you have that last movement of the story. Context, conversation, and then there's that climax where you're wondering what's she going to do? And that's where we picked up the reading today. And like, you're all excited trying to figure out what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden you see like reading the text is like, she leaves her water pot and runs away. And you're like, well, what's she going to say? <laughs> and around the same time, her disciples walk up, and they're shocked and outraged that Jesus was talking to a woman in the first place. So they're all confused. And then we find out, the camera angle switches again, that while he's talking to the disciples, the, the, 
the woman is actually in the town telling everybody to come and meet Jesus, who, told her ever, who actually told her everything that she ever did. And they knew that was a sordid past. And they were extremely interested. So she's out telling people the good news about this one who knows all and could potentially bring rescue. And then the camera angle switches back to the disciples again. And there's this long lesson just a long lesson on why Jesus was ever doing this in the first place. And this is where we fail to spend an adequate amount of time. Because Jesus is indeed the rescuer of the repugnant other. Jesus rescues the most unlikely, uh, those who are the farthest away seemingly from his grace. That is clear. That is the point of the story. But that is not the only point. <laughs> story, remember spa, story, point. Here's the point. Jesus is the rescuer of the repugnant other. And so should we, his people, be. Jesus is the rescuer of the repugnant other. And so should we, his people, be. Yes, Jesus is heralded as the one who reaches those who are the farthest away, but he actually turns the conversation to his followers and says, this is what you're going to be a part of if you follow me. My mission is your mission. If I rescue the down and out, so will you play a part in doing this. And so that is why I am telling you that we didn't get to the main point. Uh, point number one, indeed, Jesus rescues all kinds of people. But for it to lay there, we would have to delete all of his conversation to the disciples. I mean, you understand that, right? Like, we could have just, like, copy and pasted or cut out that section where he's teaching his disciples and ended with, Jesus is the rescuer of the world. But it doesn't end there. There's a lot of red print that is actually conveying that this is our priority as well. It was his, so it is ours. Jesus is the rescuer of the repugnant other, and so should we, his people, be. There's point two. You ready? Look at that significance, I mean, story, point, and now we're already at application. Y'all might get out early today. I've got to make up for some lost time last week. But this application is where we want to spend our time because this is where things get hard. Do you not find it interesting that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when this mission is entrusted to the church, he says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Why couldn't he just say, you'll be my witnesses at home and abroad, both here and far away? He had to include Samaria because we all have in our lives this unique, special group of people that because of our own biases and because of our own sinful natures are especially difficult for us. And the text wants us to know that we're obligated to reach them with the gospel as well. That's the point. Now, I want you to understand something. 
I mean, sociologists, I think, are right to actually call that group of people in our lives the repugnant cultural other. We talked about that a few weeks ago. There is an in-group, there is an out-group, and there's a far group. <laughs> uh, the in-group, that's our posse, that's our clique, that's the people that we like to hang out with. The far group are those people unnamed, you know, in other parts of the world. The ones that we really struggle with are the ones that are still in our sphere of influence that stand against us fundamentally in the things that we most treasure and value. The example that was actually given by one sociologist would be the way that an activist homosexual would think about a fundamentalist Christian. That's the outgroup. They find fundamentalist Christians especially repugnant. But can I just be fair for a second? Most fundamentalist Christians would actually find activist homosexuals to be their repugnant other as well. Should it be that way? No. But let's be honest, for some it is. And it may not be that. It could be racial, it could be economic, it could be sexual. But the truth is, there's this group of people that we find especially difficult to be with or around, and the text is saying, yes, you have a mission as a follower of Jesus to even those people. And here's, the, here's where the application comes in, friends. That's graduate-level stuff. I think before we ever aspire the, the, the normal among us, before we ever aspire to targeting the repugnant other, perceptually, with the gospel, we need to figure out like, how to do it to the other, period. Like We need to go back to kindergarten a little bit and understand our outward orientation obligation and, and reach people that are already within like the in-group, if you will, the, the sphere of influence, before we start trying to get to the more advanced of uh, the most deep and the most dark and the most perceptually repugnant among us. And so I want to encourage you with just a few reminders that we see here from this text. There's four of them. Here's your applications, four of them, from the example of Jesus that are right here. This is our mission to others especially those who are on the farthest reaches of things. Uh, it needs to be personal, principled, purposeful, and promised. Just because I like getting on your nerves, I'm not going to repeat that. But you, if you listen closely, I will say them again. All right, so the first one, personal. Jesus models for us the mission that we ourselves should endeavor to undergo. And did you notice in the opening parts of the story when we reviewed it a few weeks ago how Jesus personally entered into this woman's relational space? Sometimes we think of the mission as something that is rather strategic and large, but in this count, we see Jesus breaking just about every social taboo upheld by first century Jewish rabbis, and scripture literate males by entering into this woman's sphere. He was sitting there at a well. He was tired. The disciples were getting some food. And what is he doing when we see in verses 1 through 5? He actually sits there. He sees the woman coming. And instead of like holding his hand up to his face and looking away and acting like she wasn't there at all, he intentionally engages her by asking her for a drink. 
He personally enters her relational space for the sake of being able to accomplish the mission. I find it fascinating that then he engages with her in a conversation on felt needs. Like he talks to her about things that she would feel a burden in, and then he transitions to her main problem. The truth is, friends, if we are going to engage in the mission that has been entrusted to us by the risen Christ, uh, we're going to have to be personally connected to those around us. It is a personal endeavor. The truth is, many of us, as Americans, we're so busy being productive that we have no time to be present. We're so busy being productive that we have no time to be present. If you are one of those uh, researchy, geek type of people that want to fact check everything I say, I'm going to go ahead and warn you. I don't have the details here, but I do have the point. There was a study, but it's real. I'm not making it up. It's a real study (laughs) on people ministering to the needs of others, and it was actually done, I think, at Princeton Seminary. It was a fascinating study because what they did was they took a group of preachers at Princeton, which is not a conservative school by any way, shape, or form in these days, but these guys and ladies, I presume, are still preachers in some regard. And what they actually told them to do was they were to prepare a message on the Good Samaritan. And so, and they were going to preach it in one of the lecture halls on campus at Princeton. And so they, they gave them an a ill-formed map and said, hey, when you get here, go to this particular place. Well, what happened was they went to the particular place, and they found out that their lecture was actually going to be on the other side of campus somewhere else. So with test group A, what they told the people to do is like, you've got to get over there in the next five minutes. You're going to be late. With test group B, they said, well, because we moved it, you're going to have 30 minutes. And then these researchers put on the pathway from that one building to the building where they were supposed to be someone in ailing need. They were like, like crying out, like, help me, help me, help me. So group A has only five minutes to get over there. The overwhelming majority of them, about to preach the meshes on the Good Samaritan, walk past the person crying out for help. Group B, 30 minutes the overwhelming majority stopped to provide the help. The point of the research was actually to show that not that one group was ultra-cold-hearted and the other group was not. The point was that the one group took time and that enabled them to be relationally involved, whereas the other group did not. Friends, I don't know how many of us have bought into the lie that we only have five minutes and are missing all kinds of personal opportunities with those who are around us. How do we ever expect to be able to have meaningful conversation or proclamation regarding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ if we can't even find out somebody's name? In fact, there was a fantastic little book. It's a little cheesy, but I like the overall premise entitled The Art of Neighboring, and in it, 
The authors are trying to help people just like me and you get out of our Christian bubble. You know what that is, right? When you only interact with other Christians. And they said the key to this is neighboring. Like if Jesus said love your neighbor, maybe it starts with your physical neighbors, the people who live beside you. And what they actually said is there's three steps to this personal relationship. The first is they're a stranger, then they become an acquaintance, and then you enter into relationship. Well, when they're a stranger, step number one is to get their name. That's a good start. You know, you could even knock on somebody's door and say, you know what, I've lived here 10 years, and I am embarrassed by this, but I have never met you. What's your name? My name is such and such. (laughs) The second step that they actually offer to entering into a relationship is moving past the stranger phase into the acquaintance phase, and this is where you try to get to know stuff about them from talking to them, not what you can find out on their social media profile, not what you can see from looking at their yard like they own red rose bushes, but like, hey, what do you do? Where'd you grow up? Where are you from? That's step two, making them an acquaintance. Step three is relationship. This is getting to their heart, talking about hopes and fears and dreams and aspirations. And then they offer, well, in light of that, since you've built up that relational trust, now you're talking about the heart, you can get into matters of the soul. Some of us are like, man, where are all my gospel opportunities? Where are all my witnessing opportunities? I think you're looking for a microwave approach and what the Bible calls for is a crockpot. Microwave, hit the button, one minute, let's get it done. I call it drive-by evangelism. Throw the track at somebody and run away and say you did your job. Or you can play the long game and actually be like your Lord and Savior and sit and watch and observe and enter into people that God has brought into your relational sphere. This is a helpful reminder. This this mission that he has called us to is personal. Second, this mission that he's entrusted us with is principled. It is principled. Do you notice how when you're reading through verses 16 to 26, that entire conversation with the woman, that Jesus starts off with felt need, but then he gets to factual need? Jesus, at the end of the day, as kind as he was to this woman, still corrects her theology. He still corrects her theology. I I want you to see it for yourself, because he offers her water, and then he says to her in verse 21, Or verse 20, she introduces the debate. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. And now notice the correction. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Just pause there for a moment. Do you notice that? She was like, oh, well, you're a Jew, so you believe things this way. I'm a Samaritan. I believe things this way. And Jesus says, ho, ho, ho. Actually, both of you are wrong in one sense because worship is not about the particular place. But since we're talking about it, salvation is from the Jews. Like God promised to bring his saving grace through this particular line of people. And then what does he do? He invites her to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now you say, Justin, this is really obvious. I appreciate you pointing this out. No, it is not really obvious, friends. I think some of us is bought into a lie. Uh, Should I? Okay, I'm going to do it. I was somewhere yesterday. 
in which someone is sharing um, like an exhortation of some kind, and he quotes St. Francis of Assisi saying, now keep in mind, Francis of Assisi is a Roman Catholic monk. He's not a Christian. (laughs) And he says um, this line, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And then exhorts everyone to be light by preaching the gospel without words, which is nonsensical if you even know what the phrase preach means. Sorry, I, that, I really am sorry. I'm not trying to be ultra bitter and sarcastic, but I'm really frustrated. And, and you wouldn't know why, because so many of us have bought into that and we're like, look, I am witnessing strong for Jesus by living a good moral life. You know, Mormons and Roman Catholics try to live good moral lives too. And just because somebody sees that you're a good, moral, upstanding individual doesn't mean that they're going to know the difference between salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus alone and salvation by grace plus works or salvation by works or salvation by some other God. You know, Muslims strive to be good, moral, upstanding people too, right? Mormons, man, they, they have cornered the market on advertising good, moral, upstanding, wholesome family. That, that, that doesn't make, at some point we have to get to principle, we have to get to truth, we have to actually convey that, what is it that you believe? Well, I, I understand why you say that, but you need to understand that the Bible says this. Like the mission that we've been called to is not just personal and relational, that's so true, but it's also principled. It's truth in love. It's truth in love. The in love, yeah, is is the context, but the truth is the content. So you can't forget that, friends. And and maybe you're like, well, I don't know. I don't know how to have those conversations. I don't know the gospel that well. Friends, that is why a church like this exists, in part to equip you so that you would know. One, it's personal. Two, it's principled. Three, it's purposeful. Is purposeful. Friends, uh, this doesn't accidentally happen. This is something that we must intentionally engage in. We must be about the mission. Uh, Notice what Jesus says, and this, this is so good. His analogies are way better than mine. He's talking to them in verse 31. The, The disciples are trying to get him to eat, right? They think, Jesus, we stopped here in Samaria of all places because you were hungry, because you were tired. Hey, we got the food. You need to eat. Why are you talking to this woman? But they said, I mean, he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Here's why I'm really sitting at this well. And the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? They can't help but think of physical food, like their actual existence on this planet. And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Notice the purposeful tone of that. And now he turns it to them. Do you all not say that there are yet four months, then comes harvest? You get that, right? If you've ever grown anything, you put it in the ground, it takes about four months for it to come up. He said, look, you know how this analogy works. He says, you know, you got four months and then you got to get it up out of the ground. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, see that the fields are white for harvest. He's telling them, you look up. I already see the harvest. You need to see the harvest, and it is withering on the vine. Um, 
personal survey here. How many of you have ever had a garden? Wow, that's a lot of you. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, how many of you have, well, never mind. We'll leave it at garden. (laughs) So you get the principle. You can at least borrow from it. I've done it twice, and I loved it. My wife has done it another time, and I didn't engage. I apologize to the same degree that I did when it was my garden. That was selfish. But we all understand that in the gardening process, you do a lot of work for very little result at the beginning. I mean, you sit there and you're looking at dirt. You're watering dirt. And then there's just a little sprig there, and you're like, this just a sprig. And then you spend all these months keeping grass and random weeds from growing around your little sprig. And I don't know what it is about gardening, but if you don't do it every day, you fail. You automatically lose. The first day you miss, it's over. The thing's taken over. Still working, working, working every day, intentionality, no result, no result, no result. And then all of a sudden, fruit starts coming, and it starts coming fast. You see the little flowers, and you're like, okay, something's about to happen. And then stuff's on the vine, and you're like, you're overwhelmed with whatever it is, tomato, zucchini, cucumber, watermelon. Like You can't stop. It's like, man, we've got to get on this. It's going to start dying on the vine. If we don't like, get rid of this stuff, like, if we don't take it, it's going to go to waste. It's work, 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 no fruit, and then there's this urgency at the end. It's like, we've got to get it. Jesus says to them, all right, four-month time period, you're used to like just thinking, waiting, praying, planning. He says, I'm telling you, the harvest is already here. The harvest is already happening. That the right people have already come along and preached and prepared for there to be a true harvest and an ingathering of souls for my honor and glory, and you better get busy. You better get intentional. It's not like, well, those zucchini will jump into my basket whenever I'm up for it. No, you got to go out there and get them. There is a level of intentionality that he is calling for in this, and he is saying, get involved. The fruit is dying on the vine. You must be purposeful about this. Friends, we need to understand that this is what we have been called to do by our Lord and Savior in the meantime. It was John MacArthur who pointed this out to me several years ago through a book. He said, you know, do you understand that evangelism is the only reason why God has left us on this planet? Some of us think that God left us on the planet for worship. But he would argue back, MacArthur points out from like the survey of Scripture, well, if it's worship, why wouldn't he just take us to heaven right now where worship would be perfect? Say, well, no, 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 God's left us here so that we can build up one another in the faith. Well, if it's just us building up one another in the faith, why doesn't he just go ahead and return and we would instantly be like Jesus as soon as we see him? He says it's about evangelism because that's the only thing that will not be done after his return. This is why he left us here. And so we must be intentional. We must be purposeful. We must be consistent, intentional, proactive, And what happens, friends, I say this graciously, kindly, is we just kind of get sucked into doing church and we forget that we actually have been entrusted with a responsibility together. I read you a quote two weeks ago from Spurgeon. I like Spurgeon because he seems to be a rather jolly individual. If you've ever seen a picture of him, he's a big guy. He's got a huge beard. Sometimes he's smoking a pipe. He just seems to be a really laid-back kind of guy. 
I also like him because he's a Baptist, and so am I. (laughs) So convictionally, we align. And I also like him because he does indeed like convey a sense of humor, but here's where I like him the best. He tells the truth. The guy just always can get to the point of a passage. What happened to me two weeks ago never happened to Spurgeon. He just, he jumps right to the point. But here's the interesting thing about Charles. Let's call him that since he seems to be a rather relational guy. Uh, Charles is normally very uplifting and encouraging. But the quote that I read you was the most convicting thing I've ever read from Spurgeon in my entire life. I want to read it for you again. Because for somebody like good old Chuck, let's call him that even better, to actually be so point pointed and painful means that it must have been something that he was really concerned about listen again to his warning to his own congregation this is in the 1860s some of you good people do nothing except go to public meetings the bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better christians you would be a good deal better christians if you would look after the poor or needy around you If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics. It's a stomach disease. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair? You see what he's saying to his church? I mean, these people are coming to hear him preach. And you know what he's telling them? Like, why do you keep coming to hear me preach? You know, some of your problem is, I'm just paraphrasing here, is you're not busy doing what I'm doing with other people throughout the week. Like, you need to be engaged in work. And that sounds like really heavy, and it sounds really hard, but we know this to be true, physically speaking. We live in a culture that is obsessed with self-care and personal health. In fact, this particular uh, area, uh, Naples, Florida, ranked the happiest, healthiest place in the world multiple years in a row. It's a blue zone, whatever that means. I have, think it has something to do with being healthy. We live with a bunch of, all of us, we're like there people are concerned about health. And here's what healthy people know. They know that you need to eat healthy food. They know it, it matters what comes into your body. But here's the deal, friends. Let's just do a little like, thought exercise for a second. Let's say that I load up my body with all kinds of healthy food. 3,000 calories worth, but I don't ever expend the energy. I don't ever burn up those calories with activity. What will happen to me, even if it's the healthiest of food? I'm going to get sick. I'm going to get fat. You know what the whole point of eating is? To give you the energy to do that which God has given you to do. (laughs) It's the old debate, do you uh, live to eat or eat to live? The right answer is eat to live. Now, I want you to apply that to church. Because some of us love what I would call like high-fiber preaching. (laughs) 
And we love doctrinally sound, you know, portions. And we want things to be healthy. And we like exposition. And we like good theology. But we take it in and we take it in and we take it in and we take it in. For what? It needs to be used. I applaud. I mean, really. I love that our church loves the Word of God. But what Spurgeon is trying to say, you don't live to eat, you eat to live. You, you feed and nourish yourself so that you can be engaged in mission throughout the week. It, this is the priority. And so the question would be, and it's just good self-assessment, as you come to a, a place like this, as you're a part of this particular church, would you identify yourself as more of a contributor or a consumer? Are you more of a contributor to the mission of this church or a consumer of what it has to offer? What would others say about you? I think what Jesus is calling us to here on a very elementary level is to be a contributor. Yes, we consume, but we are engaged in mission together. The uh, mission statement of this church has been stated in various ways through the years to keep it from sounding so programmy and um, too well rehearsed. I want to say it again now just to remind you, but I'm going to use different words, okay, just so maybe it'll keep us mentally engaged. Faith Bible Church exists to radiate the glory of God through the raising up of generations of Christ followers. Faith Bible Church, this, this church exists to radiate the glory of God through raising up generations of Christ followers. When you said, hey, I want to be a part of the church, you know what you're saying? I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. You know, it's in our church covenant. We're actually going to review that again together as a church. Uh, one of the, the, the first lines is this. We will trust and obey the word of God, acknowledging its supreme and final authority as we work together, notice that, work together for the continuance of a faithful gospel ministry in this church as we sustain its worship ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. Like, we all agreed that this is what we're doing. We're going to work toward this. And friends, I want to encourage you in this because I think sometimes when we hear a message like this, we immediately think, oh, I know, he wants me to be like an insurance salesman and go around and be an extrovert and start talking to a bunch of random people about the gospel. If that's the only way you know how to accomplish Christ's mission, I feel sorry for you. And so I actually want to open up some alternate ways. What we just actually said there is one of the ways that we together are proclaiming the gospel is by gathering. Have you ever thought about that? Did you know that when you participate in this event, you are singing the gospel, you are reading the gospel, we are proclaiming the gospel together? Some of you have, like, have given to enable staff members to dedicate time into proclaiming the gospel clearly on Sunday mornings and in other positions and slots. I think that one of the areas in which we most underestimate where we're already being engaged in the mission is through our own church. We think it's something that's done individually. I want to give you a challenge. It's only going to be for a, a narrow few of you, but I think maybe it'll spread. I like to recommend books from time to time and say, hey, you should really read this. I want somebody to like get together and do a book club on, listen, Charles Spurgeon, The Soul Winner. Charles Spurgeon, the soul winner. 
Now, you hear that, and you're like, oh, I know what Spurgeon's going to say. He's going to say that we all need to be out there, like, beating the bushes and knocking on people's doors and talking to random people at McDonald's or Burger King. No, Spurgeon will not say that, because McDonald's or Burger King wasn't there. (laughs) I'm just kidding. He actually has a much better strategy. You know what? When he preaches on evangelism with his church, do you know what he prioritizes? This blew me away when I read this a few years ago. He prioritizes the church. You know how he says that you can be consistent, intentional, and proactive in evangelism? He says it's by coming to church, and listen to this, praying together with the saints for conversions. How often do you pray for the Lord of the harvest to reap the harvest? I am so glad that the elders decided that we would take some time on Sunday mornings to pray together as a church. Like most churches just kind of tuck that thing away somewhere in the week. But the fact that we would give it that Sunday morning prominence so that we could come together and pray for conversions, to pray for the Lord of the harvest, not only to call forth laborers into the harvest, but to actually reap that harvest through us. That is a major way that Spurgeon would say that we're involved in the work of evangelism. Here's another one. He also would say, this is fantastic, you have a major opportunity every time the church gathers on Sunday to proclaim the gospel to those that you don't know who may be sitting around you. You understand that if somebody showed up to this church on a Sunday morning and you don't know who they are, they're probably here for a decent reason, especially if they're lost. I doubt that anyone seriously put a gun to their head and say, show up to church or you're done. They probably were thinking, I need something spiritually. I want something spiritually. You know what we should be busy doing? (laughs) This is, again, Spurgeon's phrase. He actually kind of like uh, would equate what is happening on Sunday morning as kind of like air war. I'm modernizing his analogy here, so please pardon me. And then he would say what should happen with the congregation afterward is ground war. (laughs) If someone's here and you don't know them, man, what a great time to say, hey, it's good to see you today. Glad you're here. And what'd you think about the message? What about that part where he was talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? I mean, you are set up week after week after week. Take them to lunch. I remember hearing one pastor say that, he called a church member over and said, hey, um, will we go over here and speak to this person? I don't know if they're in Christ. And uh, they, the church member said, which one? And the pastor said, does it matter? <laughs> really, if you don't know if the person's in Christ, what a great conversation that would be. We're already, like corporately, we're doing this every week. Could you imagine that? If we were that intentional every time we gather. But then there's also the personal side of things. And I will not hit this hard because we hit it all the time. All I'm going to say is there are people already within your existing sphere of influence with whom you should be intentional with gospel advance. Uh, Alistair Begg calls it frangelism. Frangelism. Friends, relatives, associates, neighbors. Or family relatives. Yeah, friends, relatives, associates, neighbors. Uh, Parents in here, I don't care if your children are out of the home or in, I hope that you are regularly proclaiming the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is intentional evangelism. That is good. That is godly. Praise the Lord. We saw the fruit of that even in baptism today. May God continue to raise up generations of Christ followers through families here, not just churches being planted. Your family matters. Your relatives matter. Your associates matter. 
Yeah, you got to pick your time and your place. You can't always witness on the job. But entering relationally and then being intentional is great. Here's the last one, and we're done. The mission is promised. The mission is promised. What I thought is so encouraging is that Jesus says in verse 35 that you don't have to wait for the harvest. The harvest is already here. There's already fruit. Notice verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Friends, did you know that God has already prepared the hearts of the people to whom you will proclaim the gospel? And some of them will believe? Do you remember that instance with Paul where he says he needed to go into such and such a city because um, God, he knew that God had already called some there. God's, God has already called some, and you get to play a part in that. It reminds me of that famous story about the uh, shoe salesman in Africa. You had these two salesmen sent by a British shoe manufacturer to Africa and to investigate and to report back on market potential. And the first one actually reports back, no potential here, nobody wears shoes. And of course, the second, there's massive potential here. Nobody wears shoes. (laughs) Friends, there is massive potential here. God has already prepared their hearts. Christ has already died for them. Other people, listen to this, have probably already preached to them. You may play a role in the prayers and preaching of a concerned mom and dad back in a state somewhere else. It may actually be you get to be the one that that harvests that which was sown by another generations ago. Who knows what you're stepping into? I think we often step into evangelism assuming, all right, I got to make this thing happen, as opposed to saying, I get to play a part. It is a perspective we should have faith. One more Chuck quote. Spurgeon, that is. He says, you must believe in the power of that message to save people. You may have heard the story of one of our first students at their little um, Bible college who came to me and said, I've been preaching now for some months and I do not think I've had a single conversion. I said to him, and do you expect that the Lord is going to bless you and save souls every time you open your mouth? No, sir, he replied. Well, then, I said, that is why you do not get souls saved If you had believed, the Lord would have given the blessing. And then here's Spurgeon's commentary. I had caught him very nicely, but many others would have answered me in just the same way as he did. They tremblingly believe that it is possible by some strange, mysterious method that once in a hundred sermons God might win a quarter of a soul, and they have hardly enough faith to keep them standing upright in their boots. How can they expect God to bless them? I like to go to the pulpit or to the opportunity feeling, this is God's word that I am going to deliver in his name. It cannot return to him void. I have asked his blessing upon it, and he is bound to give it, and his purposes will be answered, whether my message is a savor of life unto life or of death unto death to those who hear it. Friends, I tell you, based on John 4, this water works. It works. 
Like, you are offering something that actually makes the difference. It is not up to you to make the difference. Christ makes the difference. This is promised, and it changes our perspective, our willingness to engage. Friends, we know those who have been dissatisfied, who have found their souls quenched in Christ. We know those who have been despised and outcast, who have found themselves in the middle of the family of God. We know those who are religious and who have been deceived, even like Christian's testimony earlier, who were trying in their own religious way to have access to the eternal life that God offers in Christ, and ultimately they come to find it. This thing works. Jesus offers this water, this relationship with God. We need to acknowledge our wickedness and our need for him, and yet he has lived the life that we could not live. He has died the death that we deserve to die. He rose again, showing that he has conquered death on our behalf. And for all who repent of their sin and rely upon him alone, there is salvation. There is no doubt. This is promised, and all we get to do is to share that with others. We enter into the harvest that he himself has secured. And so, friends, I invite you to remain engaged in this, not out of guilt, but grace, out of an opportunity for our Lord and Savior to be glorified. Just remember, it is personal. It is principled. It is promised and it must be purposeful. I leave you with these words from John Stott, one of brethren in our church sent these to me a few years ago. I found them so helpful. He says, we must be clear then about true missionary motivation. Why do we desire the spread of the gospel throughout the world? Not out of a sinful imperialism or triumphalism, whether for ourselves or the church or even Christianity, or just because evangelism is part of what Christian obedience is, though it is, nor primarily to make other people happy, though it does, but here's why. Here's why we do this. But especially because the glory of God and His Christ is at stake. God is King, has inaugurated His saving reign through Christ, and has a right to rule in the lives of His creatures. Our ambition then is to seek first his kingdom, to cherish the passionate desires that his name should receive from the men, from men the honor which it is due. Friends, it is about displaying God's glory. We enter into that privilege. We exist, we here exist to radiate God's glory by raising up generations of Christ followers. Let's do that together in prayer and then a song of commitment to do the same. Father in heaven, what a joy, what a joy is ours to represent your son who is the rescuer of the repugnant other. That was us, or we were on the outside, we were the distant ones, we were the ones who were foreigners to the promise and yet you included us through the sacrifice of your son, through the sending out of individuals who faithfully proclaim the word to us. Lord, continue to do that through us. Encourage those who are endeavoring to do this faithfully. Lord, convict and help those who are struggling. And even 
the few who may be here today who have not yet drank and imbibed this living water. Give them life today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.